as we, you know, it's Children's Sabbath. So uh, now Ms. Emma Kate Wright's going to come be our scripture reader, scripture reader this morning. There she is. I lost her in the crowd. <laughs> Looked at mom and daddy. She wasn't there, but she's in the back. So. The Old Testament reading today is from Joshua chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord passed on, blowing the trumpets continually. Then the armed men went before them, and the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord, while trumpets blew continually. On the second day, they marched around the city once and then returned to the camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they rose early and at dawn and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you this city. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Kate. You know, when I, one of the, I can't speak for every preacher in creation, but for me, one of the hardest parts about working on a sermon is, is to think about what, what I want to say. How do I want to start? How do, how do I, you know, what do I want the sermon to be about? That, that for me, the opening part of the sermon is always sometimes the hardest. Once I get that down, everything else kind of falls into place. So I thought, okay, on, on Jericho, when the walls come tumbling down, where do I, I want to start? And so my first thought was we should all be singing uh, the John Cougar Mellicamp because he's just, you know, the Mellicamp song when the walls come tumbling down. I mean, come on. Who don't want to sing some good John Cougar Mellicamp in church? I mean, I think it was Johnny Cougar. Good call. Good pay. I think I was actually, he, he changes names more than Madonna changes outfits. I mean, you know, boy, you got to be really old to know that joke. That's... Um, I can't even know who Madonna. So everybody my age and older is laughing at the Madonna joke. A lot of the others don't quite get it. But um, so I thought, okay, you know, we should sing Johnny Cougar Mellicamp in church. That's what we can do when the walls come tumbling down. I thought, no, that's not a good idea. We have a better resource in our church. We have children, and it's Children's Sabbath. And one thing we know about this text is there was a lot of racket made. In Jericho. So what I want all of our, uh, so all of our kids, I want you, congregation, to imagine yourself as the resident of Jericho. You're sitting there drinking your Keurig, you know, reading the Clarion Ledger, you know, kind of getting your day off to a good start, getting your feet underneath you. And you look outside the wall and you see these weird Israelites marching around making a bunch of racket. So I want all, so you adults, you are the residents of Jericho sitting, wearing your Snuggie, watching Sports Center, kind of getting your day off to a slow start. And the kids are going to be the Israelites walking around Jericho. So all the kids and some enthusiastic adults have some noisemakers. So adults, you're Jericho, Jerichoites, Jerichoians, whatever they are. Kids, stand, blow your noise and let's simulate Jericho. All right, so, so you're sitting there, and you look outside the window, and you see a bunch of folks you don't know marching around your city, but a bunch of noisemakers making a lot of rackets. If you read the story of Joshua, which we're doing in the stewardship season, 
And the reason why we're looking at Joshua is I think Joshua is a great story and a great example of Scripture in what it's like to have a vision and move toward it. Because if you, if you look throughout the Old Testament, you see that in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the people were captives, they were slaves, but they were driven by this vision of the promised land. They were driven by this vision of going to the promised land. But then they have a bunch of roadblocks in the way. A lot of things happen. Sin, defeat, all kind of stuff. To eventually, the original people of Israel who left, ex, who left Egypt are not the inheritors of the promised land. But it's their children. The original folks who left, they didn't get in. Moses himself didn't get in. But it was their children who got in. And so when you look at the story of the Exodus, when you look at all this, all this is building all this is building towards the point we get to today. They've crossed the Jordan. They've already won some battles. And it's all building to this day. And Jericho is an interesting city. I've actually, I've actually seen the walls that tumble down. I've been to Jericho uh, on so much of the Holy Land. It's a very interesting place. These walls are massive. Jericho, in that culture... And in that historical moment, Jericho was one of the most defendable, hardest cities to conquer. It was one of the oldest cities in the world, and it was one of the first walled cities in the world. So this is not going to be an easy victory. This is not going to be a walk in the park. This is going to be hard. This is going to be a challenge to scale these walls, to defeat this city, to defeat this area, which is going to be incredibly challenging. If you remember last week, though, Rahab said, the people are afraid of you already because they've heard of what you've done. So we see that the people of Jericho knew what was coming. So you would think, you would think that if Israel was going to conquer Jericho, They'd have some great, grand, strategic military plan, wouldn't they? You know, shock and awe. Bring out the artillery. We would read about uh, the people flanking the left side, whatever that means. I'm not a military historian. You know, they would flank something. because that's always. If you watch a World War II documentary, somebody's always flanking something. I don't know what that means, but they do it, and apparently it works. So you would read about flanking. You would read about the artillery being repositioned or the archers or things like this. I'm a band parent. This reads more like a band competition than a military battle. I don't know many military battles in human history that focus so prominently on trumpets. No offense to any of you who are trumpet players, but they're loud. And they make a lot of noise. So you don't typically focus on the trumpets going into a battle. But that's what happens here. We see, we don't see as much military strategy as we see almost an order of worship. The ark goes out. The trumpets go out. They march around the city. There's the, you have the, 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 the symbolism of the seven days and creation and all these beautiful things happening there. But then on this day, they go out and they blow the trumpets. The ark is with them. And instead of grand military strategy, what do we see? Like the great theologian Johnny Cougar once sang, the walls come tumbling down. They fall and they shout 
and the city is theirs. This is one of the more different and challenging and interesting military victories in human history. It really is. But to me, it's so interesting upon what it takes to make this victory possible. When we look at the text, I think we see a couple things. First, we see that for this battle to have been won, we see that it takes everyone doing their part. Once again, if you're drawing a military strategy, and I'm not a military strategist. I've just read a couple books on the Civil War. I don't know anything. But you would think you'd focus on the archers or, or the horse riders or the whatever. But this talks a lot about the Ark of the Covenant. It talks a lot about the trumpet players. It talks a lot about these type of things that you would not ordinarily see as a big deal in battle. But yet, if the ark was not carried correctly, the battle would not have been won. If the trumpeters did not blow at the right moment, as as Joshua instructed, the battle would not have been won. If everyone did not do their part exactly as the Lord laid out through Joshua, this battle, which seemed impossible, would not have been won. See, and I'm the kind of guy, I'd have been raised man, like saying, Joshua, sir, um, not to butt in here, but like, this does not seem like a good plan. I've Googled it. This does not seem how battle should work. The plan laid out by Joshua almost seems counterintuitive. It almost seems too simplistic. It almost seems, dare I say, too childlike to win a battle. But yet it worked. But it took everyone doing their part. Everyone doing what they were called to do. Frankly, everyone living out of their talent out of their calling, out of their identity, out of who they were for the battle to have been won. It took everyone doing what God had called them to be. And in an ordinary military strategy book, the role of the trumpets would not have been a particularly important part of the story. It might not have even been mentioned. But yet who do we keep talking about in this story? Those trumpet players. It might not look important to me or you. It might not look symbolic to me or you. Or like it matters to me or you. But in God's game plan, it's a huge deal. And that's the other thing about, if you read the Bible, read the Old Testament in particular, but even the New Testament. At one point God says to the Israelites, The reason why I chose you was because I couldn't find a more scrawny group of people out there. Think about Gideon. Remember Gideon, his story in the book of Judges? When uh, he's going to fight this huge battle and he starts getting recruits, his problem is this. He has too many soldiers. So God has him call down the herd and call down the herd and call down the herd until he's left with very few people. And the question is, God, wouldn't you want to go into battle with like a lot of people, not less? Don't you want more, not less? But God has, Joshua, has Gideon kind of winnow down his army to a very few so that when the battle was won, there could be no doubt it was God who won the battle. Gideon was not successful because Gideon was a great strategist. 
Gideon was successful because God's a great God. Joshua was not successful because Joshua was a great strategist. Joshua was successful because God's a great God. It's not about necessarily our worth or our power or our ability or our intelligence or anything that we bring to the table, y'all. It's about God being a great God. I'm not a great preacher. God's a great God. It's about God's faithfulness, not our faithfulness. If God is faithful, we can be faithful. We need to live our lives not as an effort to make God love us, but we need to live our lives as a response to God's love. Our, our life is not lived in a means by which to convince God that we are worthy of love. Our lives are lived as a response to the understanding that God loves us anyway. God is a great God. And God makes the victory possible. Y'all, that's church. I mean, that's church, y'all. The things that make church church are, are the same. It takes everybody doing their part, y'all. It takes everybody doing what they can do. It takes everybody pitching in. It takes everybody being faithful. It takes everybody doing what it is they feel called to do, even if it doesn't seem significant. So, what better place to start my sermon today than with the children making a bunch of racket? Because I've been in a church in my ministry that had no children making racket. And guess what I did at that church my last Sunday in the Delta? I helped close it. You know? A church without children making racket, the church without the Spirit of God in it. Now, that might not like seem like much, might it? Because there's more important people than children, you know, right? <laughs> Just like there's more important military soldiers than trumpeters. But if the kids don't do their part and find their place in the church, as Aunt said, train up a child in the ways of the faith and they will not depart from it. It's up to us to model that. So it takes everybody doing their part. It takes everybody doing their part. It takes the praise team praising. It takes the folks getting extra chairs out of the, out of the racks to get, extra, to, to, to get everybody a seat to do that. It takes our tech team back there who typically every Sunday I'm saying, hey, can y'all do this? I know you don't think you have to, but can you do it for us? And they do it. Takes the greeters. Takes our, on Wednesday night, it takes our, you need to come to Wednesday night, even if you don't want to come in and eat. You need, I wish you could see the organized chaos that takes place in this room right here on Wednesday nights. It's insane. But they're doing it so people can, if you feel comfortable coming inside to eat, great, here's your food. If you don't feel comfortable, then we'll bring your food to you. It's okay. We want you to be served. That takes everybody, from folks scooping the food to folks running to folks doing the orders. It takes everybody. It takes the folks folding bulletins. It takes the folks stuffing bulletins. It takes, takes the people making phone calls. It takes everyone doing their part, and no one thing looks incredibly significant sometimes. If that trumpet player doesn't blow, Jericho doesn't fall. 
If we don't all do what we feel called to do, then the body of God, body of Christ, doesn't move as it should. But just like Jericho, one of the things we take away from our service to God, even if it feels sometimes inadequate, even if it feels like it's not enough, or even if we feel like we do it imperfectly, or even if we get it wrong more than we get it right, it's not about our perfect performance, y'all. It's about the perfect God we do it for. It's not about our perfect performance. It's about the perfect God we do it for. We're not the object of this, y'all. Our perfect action is not the point of it. What is the point of it is us laying our life down to God in service, in ways that look grand and glorious, in ways that no one will ever see. Because it's not about us. It's about him. And just as every member of Israel had to do what they had to do for them to conquer Jericho, every one of us, those watching online, those in intersection, those in traditional, those that came to 830, it takes all of us doing our part for the body of Christ to move together in unity. Each week we're talking about a different part of Joshua. Well, today it's unity. Today it's everybody doing their part. Everyone doing their part for the body of Christ to move forward. So I don't know what, the, I don't know what that is for you, y'all. But you do. So I really want to ask you, I want to ask you two questions. I want to kind of ask you two questions kind of as we draw the sermon to an end. Oh, yeah, I still got time. I got time to ask much. It might have been one question if I don't have any time. So. Or I'd have merged the two into one. But I've got 10 minutes still, so I can just keep talking, you know. I want to talk about football or anything or band. I got, you know, so just. But um, first question is this. What do you enjoy? What in your life? Somebody asked me the other day, said, Andy, how do you know? How do you know you're being obedient to God? How do you know you're really being faithful what God's called you to do? Because maybe I feel called to this, but what if I'm supposed to be doing that? How, how, do, how do you know what you're supposed to do or what you're called to do is the right thing? How do you know? And let me tell you this. This is my, this is my belief, I think, backed up by Scripture. Because John Wesley, well, John Wesley quotes a Scripture when he says, we have in our belief system the doctrine of assurance. Assurance is this. My spirit gives witness with God's spirit that I'm a child of God. I can feel the assurance of God in my life knowing that I'm being faithful. We can have the assurance of the Holy Spirit in our life knowing that we're being faithful. We don't have to guess. We can know. We can know. We can feel God's presence in our life, God's assurance in our life that we're being faithful. We, know, we can know that. You, you don't have to doubt your salvation. Like, there's nothing the devil would rather make you do. Somebody once said this one time. Said, I quote this in Sunday school. The devil loves for lost folk to think they're saved and saved folk to think they're lost. I love that. He wants folks that don't know Jesus to think they've got everything perfect and figured out. And he, does, and he wants those of us who do know Jesus to think, oh, no, what if I'm really lost? Because if we're so focusing on the basics of salvation, we can't be faithful to God. I want us to move forward faithfully to what God's calling us to do. So here's my question. Where do you feel the glory of God? Where in your life do you feel God's pleasure? Any of y'all remember the old movie, Chariots of Fire? Great movie. There's a great scene in Chariots of Fire. Where it's about the two Olympic runners from, from the UK, from, from England. 
And they're talking about, you know, life and things like that. And Eric Little, who's going to be the missionary, he's talking about running. He says, when I run, I feel the pleasure of God. Oh, I love that, y'all. When I run, I feel the pleasure of God. Now, that's, I'm quoting. I'm not saying I don't feel the pleasure of God when I run. I shared a meme on Facebook the other day. You may have saw it said, um, if somebody says, you better run for your life, I'm just going to say, y'all go on ahead. I'm going to meet Jesus. But I do for the pleasure of God when I preach. I really feel the pleasure of God when I'm leading Bible study. Frankly, I'm weird. I feel the pleasure of God when I'm holding somebody's hand who just had a tragedy happen. Because in that moment, I know I'm sharing God's love with them. So I feel the pleasure of God when I serve the local church. I don't feel the pleasure of God when I'm doing administrative work. I surely don't feel the pleasure of God when I'm filling out paperwork. But I feel the pleasure of God when I'm faithfully serving his body, the local church. So I want to devote my life to living out that calling. Where do you feel the pleasure of God? What is it in your life that when you're doing it faithfully, you feel God's pleasure? By the way, this doesn't have to be something holy. I'm not saying because you're going to say, oh, when I'm reading the Bible. Maybe. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. I don't know. Maybe you feel the pleasure of God when you're doing the paperwork that I hate to do. I don't know. But where in your life do you feel the pleasure of God? That's question number one. Question two is this. How are you using that for the kingdom of God? How are you using the things in your life where you feel the pleasure of God? How are you using those things for the glory of God? Y'all, that's stewardship. Stewardship is using the things we feel the pleasure of God for the glory of God. Ants mentioned it in his, his talk. We make a vow to be faithful with our prayers, our presence, our gifts, our service, and our witness when we join the church. And I, I said this last week in traditional, and I'll say it in here too. I look at membership a little bit differently than some preachers. Because, yeah, we have formal membership. We took in a couple of members in traditional this morning. It's great. I, if you're not a member of this church, you like to learn, talk about being a member of this church, I'd love to have a conversation with you about it. I would love to have that conversation with you about it. Because I think local church membership matters. But the way I look at membership is sometimes this. I, I tell the story with my in-laws. My in-laws are saints. I can't make mother-in-law jokes because my mother-in-law and my father-in-law are amazing. But they had a season in their life where they were church shopping because of some stuff in their home church. And so they had about a, about, a, about a two-month period where they weren't in a local church. They were just hopping around. In their small community where they're part of, one, one day they had a terrible accident where a young man was killed in a car accident. And my father-in-law, my mother-in-law looked at my father-in-law and said, Eddie, if something happens tomorrow, what preacher would we call? And the next Sunday they joined New Hope Methodist Church. Membership is this. If your world goes south and tragedy visits your door, what preacher are you calling? What church are you turning to? 
And if the answer to that question is St. Matthew's, or the answer is me or Brian or one of our staff, then we're your church family whether you're a member or not. Now, I'd love to align those two things together. So when I talk about your vows, it might not be that you're a full member yet. But if you consider yourself part of this body, then that's what we're talking about. Your prayers, are you praying, are you praying faithfully for our church and for God's will to be done? Your presence, are you being present in worship, in person, online, however you're able to worship with us? Are you being faithful with your gifts, your tithes, your 10%, your offering? Are you faithful with your service? Do you, and that today, do you, do you serve? Do you do like these children do and help kick off the sermon with a noise? Are you serving? Are you being faithful with your witness? Are you letting folks know about Jesus with your words and your life? Because y'all, we don't move forward if we don't all do it together. We don't move forward unless we all do our part. We don't do forward, uh, we don't move forward unless we live out for the glory of God, the places where we feel the pleasure of God. That's what it takes. But y'all, when we do it, when we do it, the walls fall, don't they? When we blow our trumpets, the walls fall. When we serve, the walls fall. When we're faithful, the walls fall. And as Jesus says, he came to destroy the works of the devil. And whenever we as the people of God and the church of God faithfully live out our calling, our pleasure, God's pleasure, our obedience, when we faithfully move together, the walls fall, God is glorified, and lives are changed. And that's what we're here for. But it's going to take all of us. It's going to take those of us in worship this morning, physically here, those watching online. All of us. All of us. One of the more amazing things that uh, I, had, I had a day uh, two, a few weeks back when we had our chicken cooking here at St. Matthew's. Uh, if you've never helped with chicken cooking, by the way, our Chef Bailey hit a home run, obviously, as he always does. In general, chicken runs a tight ship over here. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> nice. But, y'all, it's, it's impressive. All the work and labor that goes into it on the Friday to pick up, all the work that goes in on Friday night, all the work that goes into it the day of. There's folks who, going to, who have never gone on a Honduras trip who will show up early to help out just because they want to serve the church. It takes everybody. It takes everybody. No one person could cook 1,000 chickens. No one person could do it. And no, probably outside of a few people, most, I never feel like I do enough when I show up because I spend my time running my mouth. I don't do anything useful. But everybody does their part. And when everybody does their part, $10,000 is raised for a Honduras mission trip. Everybody doing their part, y'all. That's not when we work together. That's when we do it, when we do it together. That's moving forward. But for us to do that, it's not the preacher. It's not the staff. It's not any one person. It's all of us. It's all of us. And when we move together in unity, the walls fall and God is glorified. 
may we live out our mission as individuals and as a church family. Let's pray.